Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This time last week, we weren't entirely sure if Theresa May would still be Prime Minister when we recorded today's episode. Well, she is. And she's going to spend the next two days trying to finalise the deal that will go before the House of Commons. And we are going to weigh up the prospects. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. We have with us today Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, Chris Bickerton, Reader in European Politics, and it's a pleasure to welcome Kenneth Armstrong, who is Professor of European Law, and he's also the author of a book called Brexit Time, Leaving the EU. It's got the brave subtitle, Why, How and When? All good questions. I'm not sure we still know the answer to any. It doesn't have whether, which we might get onto. Who? who's going to do the deed. We could keep going. We're probably going to focus on, I guess, the how. One way to frame the politics of this is it's an argument about how broad the spectrum of possibility was or is in securing this stage of the the deal, the withdrawal agreement. If you're Theresa May or maybe Ollie Robbins, her negotiator, I think you effectively want to say that the, the range of the possible is this, this is the best deal. And once we arrived at this, we had ruled out all the other possibilities. But the critics, of course, are trying to say that there are other ways to go, other paths we could go down. And one of the questions is when, when did we miss the path? Kenneth, what's your sense of it with what we have now? And she's she's going off to Europe today to try and fiddle around the edges. And we're hearing things from Europe that there are people who want to push back in other ways. But what's your sense of how broad the spectrum of possibility was or is? How many other deals were there out there other than this one? And I think it's worth bearing in mind that we have had a draft of the withdrawal agreement since March, and it's been a fairly developed draft of that. The last bit has really just been around about the Northern Ireland backstop and working out what the economic arrangements for the future were going to be. So really, most of the negotiations over the the summer and and into the autumn have been about that. And I think there's become a bit of a realisation at some point that instead of trying to work out what the backstop would be and then hoping they'd get round to working out what the future would look like, I think they've done a lot more about working out what the future would look like and then realising that that could work as a kind of version of the backstop. It was always going to be hard to try and negotiate two different things, a backstop and a future relationship. So I think that's kind of where they got to. So in a way, you're saying there's actually more in this than, than meets the eye because, of course, the other thing that... Theresa May is going to want to try and say to get this through the Commons is that there's still a whole range of possible futures out there. This is just the first stage in a process. Back me on this and then we'll have another go. But you're saying that actually the future has been quite curtailed by what's in this. I think if you read both the the provisions in the backstop, the protocol, and you read the outline of the the political declaration, there is very close interplay between the two. The, The outline of the political declaration talks about building upon the single customs territory that is in the backstop. So it is clear to me, or at least I think, that there is quite 
a close connection between those two things. And in that sense, the rest of the stuff is going to be on what the summit is going to look at on Sunday is the rest of the things, what else to put into this this future agreement. Chris, what's your sense of the spectrum of possibility here? Do you think, are there other deals kind of out there in the mist that we missed or is this it? I think when Theresa May says this is basically it, this is as good as it can be, I think she's right. I don't think it's credible to say that a different government or a different prime minister could go back to Brussels and renegotiate something if the basic conditions for the negotiations remain the same in terms of timing, in terms of what the government thinks are its red lines, what the EU thinks are its red lines, this is what we have. And when were those conditions set? So when did we get on this path? If this path leads here, when could we have got on a different path? Well, so I think there are different readings about what's the sort of centrepiece for this negotiation from the government's perspective. I was hearing somebody saying that the government always thought that freedom of movement was the most important thing and everything is based around moving away from that I don't think so. I think the the only way to make sense of the current agreement we have is actually Northern Ireland. That seems to me at the front and centre of all the logic that flows from it. What Kenneth was saying about the continuity between the withdrawal agreement and the future relations, that's less obvious to me. I think it may be that behind the scenes there is a kind of plan or a kind of plot, which is that the way things are set up now given the problems around Northern Ireland, basically the UK as a whole remains very, very closely aligned to the European Union, much more so than you'd assume with Brexit. So this is why people accuse this deal of being Brexit in name only. Now, if that then becomes the basis for the future relationship post-Brexit, then I think we have a big problem. The assumption, and this is certainly the way it's being presented by the government, and I take them at their word on this, is that there's a transitional period or an implementation period into something different. Now, if the current kind of withdrawal arrangements and the arrangement around the backstop becomes the basis for a permanent relationship with the EU, I don't think that can work. And bring Helen in a second, but can you just say, what, Kenneth, why do you think that what we have here is so clearly shaping this future relationship, that the backstop is actually the shape of the future? I think because what seems to me is that there are now two policy choices. One is we put everything in transition where actually everything would stay the same for whatever period it would be. But it's clear that the idea of the backstop is also a policy choice. It could be, we won't go into transition, but we will trigger the backstop. Well, why do that? Unless you thought that actually was the bridge to the future. The problem with the transitional arrangement is it's a bridge to nowhere. It just tells you everything's going to stay the same. It doesn't tell you how different the future would look once this new arrangement comes into place. And a backstop version of the future, is that in your mind Brexit in name only? Or is it how... How significantly different is it from... It's clearly much narrower because it is only really focused on the trade and goods stuff. So it is about changing the discipline. The discipline of, of EU membership would change at that point. Helen, if you look at the critics of this deal, so some of them say the hardline Brexiteers almost agree with Theresa May or Ollie Robbins or whoever and say, yeah, this is the only deal, you know, given whatever path we got on, maybe even when we triggered Article 50. And so if this is the only deal, then we have to have no deal. And then there are the people, the, the five in the cabinet, we're told, although that's another plot that seems to have gone nowhere, the sort of Andrea Leadsom or Michael Gove position, which is, no, we've still got lots of room to try and push for something better. Actually, this isn't the only deal. And we may be 
we're risking signing off too soon. Which one is a stronger political argument? I think the difficulty in people who think that the deal is Brexit in name only and therefore should be rejected for that reason is regardless of whether they are right or wrong about whether it's Brexit or name only, they are clearly taking a huge risk that Britain doesn't end up leaving the European Union because it seems pretty clear that Parliament is not going to allow a no deal to take place. So they have to choose between having what they think of as Brexit in name only or no Brexit at all, or at least a a pretty significant risk of there being no Brexit at all. So I I think that this creates a, a strange political dynamic because they can keep winning or appear to keep winning substantive arguments and saying, look, the backstop is such that it will keep us in the European Union effectively for the thing that the hardline Brexiteers care most about, the customs union, in perpetuity. But whatever substantive shots that they can win, they haven't actually got an alternative. And because they haven't actually got an alternative in these political circumstances, they end up risking complete political defeat. So no deal is not an alternative? I'm not saying that there's no circumstances in which it could happen. All I'm saying is that all the noises out of Parliament would suggest that Parliament will go, or the majority in Parliament will go a long way to try to stop that from happening. And that is a risk that the the Brexiteers have got to take on, the hardline Brexiteers, I should say, have got to take on board in the position that they're pursuing. Is it worth winning the substance of the backstop is too problematic for the future? And I'm not entirely clear that it is actually, but that's a separate question if they're going to then be held responsible for not having any Brexit at all. And they may think that the future begins with no deal. And even if they were right, I'm pretty sure that that would collapse the amount of support there presently is for Brexit. There's no evidence whatsoever, as far as I can see, that British politics could withstand the economic problems that no deal would bring. Now, that, again, isn't saying that it shouldn't be able to withstand them. It's just the judgment about the reality of where we are. So it does sound like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we agree on this, but that there isn't that broad a spectrum of possibility here, that actually this is quite close if we're not going to raise the weather question and not do Brexit at all. Once we're on that path, maybe there's some sort of tinkering around the edges, but this is kind of it. And it's hard to see what if Parliament, for example, votes on the deal and votes against it what renegotiation would take place in Brussels, what would that really look like? And I think you're right, I mean, in terms of what could be done, actually reopening the negotiations is very difficult because as I think we're already beginning to see other member states may then pile in to say, well, well, actually, we didn't, we're not happy with this bit of it and we want something. And we we are seeing that, we're seeing it today. I mean, the newspapers today have actually got more, now that the sort of re-smog thing has blown over, there's actually more coverage of pushback from Europe than there is inside the Conservative Party. I think there could be scope on the political declaration. I think the withdrawal agreements are another matter. And I think actually the line that Kenneth picked up about the customs union of the, or the customs territory rather, of the backstop being the basis for the future could actually be something that there could be further discussion about. Because it's it's not clear to me that the the EU as a whole is committed to the idea that it wants a permanent customs territory relationship with Britain. I mean, I think it would actually cause it quite a lot of problems if it went down that road. It was also unwilling to accept that initially. Its own version of the backstop was a very restrictive one, uh, which applied to Northern Ireland. And it was only upon considerable pressure from the government 
the UK government that made it apply to the UK as a whole. I don't think that's a model for the EU to pursue in perpetuity on its own side either. The reason why is that it does the thing which Czech has always promised to do and which the EU always seemed to resist is that it breaks up the single market. I mean, it has a different arrangement for trade in goods than it does for trade in services or in other the other sort of four freedoms. I'm surprised, to be honest, that this ever got through on the EU side, but it seems to have done so on the presumption that this is a temporary arrangement. So I think going sort of forward when it starts to become a case of negotiating the permanent, the sort of the future relationship after the withdrawal agreement has passed, I think there's quite a lot of scope for really deciding what is acceptable to both sides. My view is that this implementation period, this transition period, is far too short to negotiate actually a lot of Mm. these issues. And so we're going to come up against this problem of the ticking clock. The months pass by, it's impossibly short to negotiate such an important agreement. And that's going to be the problem further down the line. But I think what we have at the moment is, and Helen's quite right, the alternative to the withdrawal agreement is... Not so much no deal, because I think that we'll we'll never get there. It's the imminent prospect of no deal will be so pressing that it will push sides to unite against the very idea of pursuing Brexit. And so this is the deal that's the alternative to that. And and Kenneth, your book's called Brexit Time, your blog's called Brexit Time. And and that is one question here, which is the thing that has narrowed the spectrum of possibility time rather than broader political alliances. I mean, clearly the negotiation period has been so short and with the the UK government taking such a long time to try and get to its own landing zone on where it wanted to be, let alone to be able to negotiate, that's been a factor. But on Chris's point about transition, yes, actually having a longer transition is probably necessary in order to allow for the actual negotiations to take place on the future relationship. But the longer that the UK remains in transition, the greater the accusation then that it really is a kind of zombie Brexit. We have all the obligations obligations of membership, but without any of the political representation. And that's why parking the UK in the backstop is more helpful because actually you've got less of the obligations and the enforcement mechanisms become somewhat different. So there is a kind of political choice now to be made rather than it just being a residual, well, if all else fails, this is where we end up. If it's a really long transition period, it will extend beyond a change of government. I mean, that's one of the questions here, which is, At some point, someone else is going to be in charge. And could you do that? Could you have a single period transition, especially given the current state of British politics? Changes of government from a May government either mean to presumably a harder Brexit Tory government or a Corbyn government. I don't think the Conservatives would want to go into a general election with the transitional arrangements still in place or being still in this implementation phase. It would be quite hard for them to claim that they've done what they said they were going to do, even though they're still in this interim position. The calendar is not just set by the negotiations with the EU, it's also that a UK government doing the negotiating would want to be out of that sort of place in time for fighting another general election. Trade negotiations with, with the European Union take you know a very, very long time, they're very complex, none of them have been achieved in this sort of time period. So I don't see how that would really be possible, but there will be pressure on both sides to not let these negotiations go on forever. But it's a pretty tough ask. I mean, the other thing that's going to change, though, with time is is the European Union itself. I mean, the European Union's got European, you know, the Parliament elections coming up in May. That is going to make some political difference. There will be a new commission at a certain point. That is going to make difference. There will be elections in other European countries. Angela Merkel's going to go at some point. The European Union that Britain will be negotiating with about this trade agreement by whenever 2020-21 could actually look really quite radically different than what this this present one is. And that's why I think that in terms of the future, 
that there is actually considerable openness about where this could yet go. There's also one other really important time dimension that is even if the agreement gets approval, Parliament is going to have to legislate to bring this into into legal effect domestically and it's only likely to have three months or so. Given that the European Communities Act in 72 took 10 months to get through Parliament, perhaps to provide for our membership, a three-month timetable for us to get legislation through Parliament with all the possibilities of problems there is incredibly tight and that will potentially push them to having to extend the the period for us uh, to leave. So let's do the parliamentary arithmetic or whatever it is because that's the real anomaly here which maybe we've semi-agreed that there isn't that much scope for alternative deals and yet the one that we've got is the one that looks like it's really going to struggle to get past Parliament. A lot depends on how it's put to Parliament and there's talk of a free vote. I think that would presumably have to happen second time around. I don't think the first vote's going to be a free vote. Whether it's take it or leave it with this deal or whether options are put before Parliament. So there is a thought that if there was a free vote in Parliament and it was a choice between no deal Brexit, second referendum, people's vote, whatever it's called, and Theresa May's deal, Theresa May's deal probably wins if you can split it three ways. If you split it two ways, it really struggles. I genuinely have no idea how this is going to... How, you, how are we going to get from here, sort of the only deal on the table, to a successful vote in Parliament? So I, I'm going to stick my neck out on, go on. on this. Yeah. I think it will go through. First time? I mean, it depends how it's presented, but yeah. yes, could could well be first time. The reason why... So this I is the vote in a few weeks, in mid, mid-December. Yeah. The reason why is I think, as things stand... The only representative of the result of the referendum is May's deal. Now, you can argue about how many people wanted that and whether this is really the British people, whatever you want, but that's the result of the referendum is associated with that deal. So you're putting Parliament in a position where it's being asked to assert its parliamentary sovereignty against what people will say is popular sovereignty. And I just don't think the MPs are willing to take the risk of voting down something which is inescapably associated with the outcome of the referendum, whatever you may think of the deal itself. And I think they are right not to want to do that. So that would be the principal calculation. And then there's the slightly more pragmatic calculation, which is that who's going to get blamed if this goes down? And presumably part of what's motivating the May administration is to get parliamentarians to accept that they will be fingered for this if it goes wrong. Yes, that's a certain reading of... But I think... She wants to get it through. Well, I'm sure she wants to get it through. And if it doesn't go through, I think it's not that there's a manoeuvring to blame Parliament. It's that MPs will have stopped it from going through. The complicating factor is that how does this fit with the party politics of it? Within the Labour Party, there is a, a feeling that they can unite around rejecting this deal through very sort of misleading attempts to characterise it as not meeting their certain tests and requirements. But it's really just party politics. It's the Labour Party's sort of interest here. Now, how that fits in terms of the numbers, how many Labour MPs will dissent from that because they want to put their desire to see the deal go through above the short-term calculations of their own party and how that then fits with what will happen on the Conservative side, that's where it becomes a very... In, I don't know. I don't know about how that will stack up on the day itself. Because, Helen, you've been doubtful that this would get through for a while, haven't you? Well, I'm actually more... I'm not optimistic, it's not quite the right word, but I think it's got a better chance of going through than I thought it had a, a few weeks ago, where I thought the chances were near nil. I'm not saying I think that they're high now, but I think that there is some chance that it would. I wouldn't want to put a figure on it. I think the reason why is is because 
I think the Conservatives of the Hard Brexiteers, the European Research Group, have demonstrated in the last 10 days or so that they have less support, not just within the parliamentary party, but within Conservative associations than they thought they did. There may be a lot of people in Conservative members and indeed Conservative voters who would like a better Brexit than this. But also there seems to be considerable loyalty to Theresa May out there that seems to have taken aback, I think, some of the ERG members. So this isn't just now a question of voting this deal down. This is a question of voting this government led by Theresa May down, and that adds another complication to it. I think her position is, in some sense, immensely strengthened over the last few weeks. I think the real question is, though, as to whether it goes through or not, then becomes, as Chris says, what the Labour Party do. Because, you know, essentially... The Labour Party have played games with Brexit from the beginning of this process to the end of it. They just haven't taken a serious position for understandable electoral reasons, if we just think in those terms. It's purely been tactical opposition to this, that and the other. Now the reckoning's coming. They've got to decide whether they want to reject the lot of them, the outcome of a referendum that most of them voted for. Having that referendum, most of them voted for triggering Article 50, or at least didn't oppose triggering Article 50. And it was in their last manifesto that they received this through. The moment of truth is right for them. They have to decide whether they're going to repudiate all that and basically join the Stop Brexit brigade. Now, some of them certainly will, but enough of them might not to, to allow this these two things to pass. Helen, I wonder, if, wonder what you think. Is the flip side of the lack of votes to bring Theresa May down the fact that actually Conservative MPs have decided that actually they're going to put their energy into whether the agreement gets through or not? So they don't want to bring their leader down, but they don't want this agreement. On the I mean, that was Rhys Mogg's position yesterday, which is don't think this is over. It clearly didn't work this weekend. Those MPs went back to their constituencies and were told by their constituencies, chairmen, chairwomen, don't bring her down now. But if the first vote fails, the politics changes dramatically. But I think if what happens is those MPs do go back to their constituencies and what they're hearing is, if it's not this deal, then we're worried that we're not going to get Brexit, then do they rally around the deal at that point? I think that's the interesting question. But I think the thing is they can't undo what they've done. You know, they launched an attempted coup against her and it's failed and they will pay a, a political price for that now you know switching to plan b doesn't change the fact they tried plan a and failed and they're a weaker force as a consequence of it i think but i think the thing that weakened them more than anything else i think because you know bringing down the prime minister was a kind of the means to an end there was a time in the sort of aftermath of checkers where there was an expectation and a promise that they would provide their alternative to checkers and they didn't they simply could not come up with a different plan and i think for me that just really mortally wounded I think the ERG cause is that they were just seen as and they are just they moan but they don't have an alternative to what the Prime Minister has brought to will bring to the House of Commons and that I think is decisive I mean nobody else does either it's not as if the Labour Party's got a great alternative you know I don't either no but I mean, people don't this is what this is what we have to consider but they were the ones that, in the driving seat to come up with an alternative to her deal and they didn't. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So I want to come on in a second to the DUP because that's the other thing that has significantly changed insofar as her position has been strengthened. There is also one caveat there. But if we go through the scenarios, it must be possible that there will be more than one vote on this and that people might game it in those terms as well. So if you think of this as likely to go to the Commons twice, possibly first time gets rejected, and this happens a lot. I was actually, so I was thinking it's completely unrelated to this. I was thinking of the bailout deal after 2008 in Congress, which had to twice. And it did require certain sort of disciplining effects to work after Congress had voted it down the first time. The markets crashed and so on to focus people's minds. Is that, my guess is that might be what happens here, that actually people will, on the first vote, adopt principled positions and then they will come around because she's not going to resign if she loses the first vote. She'll have another go. So my guess is this is going to go through on a second vote. I think I agree with that. The question is, does anything have to happen in between times? Yeah, and, exactly. and, and, and I guess Beyond the, the market's crashing. But I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think it's that point. I mean, I think we've always been... A, Interesting that Theresa May spoke to the the CBI this week, and business has been sort of somewhat on the margins or episodic in this debate, hasn't really managed to kind of coalesce or provide a big force. And maybe that's the point, that if business really gets its act together at this point and gets behind the Prime Minister and says, look, this is it, this really is it, that would be the thing. So I think you're right. She wouldn't resign. I think it's so the, her sort of determination to see it through, I think, leads to this kind of multiple vote scenario. If you then assume there'll be more than one vote, then how you act in the first vote is very different from thinking it's the final vote. I don't know. Well, that, I, I, as with all things, if before the referendum there'd been a thought there might be two people. Yeah, exactly. That's how politics works. But what happens yeah. in between? I mean, the market's response. I mean, I know. And there's Christmas. I don't know if the. I, I don't actually know if if the first one goes down, how quickly you could have a second one. No, I don't know. But I'm guessing Christmas intervenes. I don't know. That would be too long, especially if there's a sort of. Uh, there's also this criticism that there'd be an engineered market reaction, that this is all a kind of conspiracy to get it through, and actually two votes is better for May than, than one. The thing about the markets, though, is that there aren't some general set of markets that are going to do this. After the first 48 hours or so, the only real market that's been responsive to what's been going on with the Brexit negotiations is sterling, sterling against the dollar, sterling against. Um, Euro. The last few weeks is British 10-year bonds, no impact whatsoever on what's going on. Now, if you go back to the US cases, is that was the share market, and a lot of those were bank shares that were crashing that was going to make the banking crisis directly worse. In the case of another fall in sterling, it doesn't have such direct consequences. I'm not saying it's a matter of no economic relevance. It would likely to produce somewhat higher inflation in the maybe a few months down the road, but it's not got the same disciplinary effect as a bond market crash would have, say, on Italy over the next few weeks. It's also possible the US stock market is wobbling at the moment. Tech shares are in real trouble, and there could be... It's not all about Mm. Brexit. It's not all about us. We're not the centre of the world. Things could happen even in the next few weeks that put this in a different light. There's also one other event that may happen at a crucial time, which is that the Court of Justice of the European Union will give its ruling on whether 
it is possible to revoke the Article 50 notice unilaterally or not because that case is now being heard at the end of this month with a judgment due sometime before Christmas. So regardless of what it says, it may just become a kind of catalytic moment where people start talking about whether we still want to carry on with this. God, it's complicated. That, well, that, was, that would embolden a Remain cause by saying, yeah, yeah. actual fact, guys, we can just pull the plug on this any time. Do you have a want. sense of how that's going to go? My hunch is that the court will say that if it decides that it's admissible in the first place, which is another question, the government is, is opposing this very strongly. But if it is admissible, the court is, I think, likely to say that the Article 50 notice can be revoked and that it will put in place very limited conditions for example, obligations of good faith, sincere cooperation amongst the parties. I don't think it will want to start laying down bright line political guidelines for what the European Council should do. But my hunch would be that it would, it would say that it was revocable up until the point where the UK was to leave. The other thing is is that Italy could reach its climax of a crisis at the same time in December because it is the month that the ECB stops QE. So it's going to be a busy month. And it's Christmas. <laughs> I think the wider sort of context is important, but my impression is that there's a kind of parliamentary bubble here and people are entirely within it and the MPs are really looking inside of themselves and wondering what this means for them, the relationship to their constituencies and their party and whether they balance principle versus something more pragmatic. It's a kind of sort of soul-searching moment for Parliament and the dynamics of that, I think, will be as decisive as some of these wider things. Because I also think that the thing that changes between the first vote and the second vote is the attitude of Labour MPs. I think there's a possibility it holds together for one vote. I think it's much harder for the line to be held for two because the pressure will be huge and all those other dynamics come into play as well, not just thinking about a general election, but whether they want to go into that election advocating Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister under these kinds of conditions. I think conditions. the other thing that's really important in terms of any possibility of a first and second vote is, is at the moment those Labour MPs who do want to support this deal whatever the position that the Labour leadership ends up taking on it, do not know how many Conservative MPs are willing to support it. So it's one thing for them to say, OK, we'll abstain or even vote for it, if they think there's a reasonable chance that it will go through. It's quite another if they think that there aren't enough Conservative MPs, given that the DUP will vote against, in order for it to go through. So in some sense, just to, they need two bites at it, because they've got to information deficit if we can call it that they they simply don't know how many conservative MPs are willing to support it and they need to be able if they are going to either abstain or vote for the deal to know that that will produce a victory for the deal it's no good them making this compromise in some case potentially even sacrificing their careers with their members and their constituencies if the thing's going down anyway one more level of complication. I mean, this is a classic political scenario in that it's both simplifying and complicating itself at the same time. We're, we're moving towards a moment of choice, and yet the things that inform that moment of choice are mind-bending because it includes the future of the union as well. So we've got the a lot of the pressure on this deal is coming from people who say the problem with this deal is it sets up differentials within the union, not just Northern Ireland versus the rest of the UK, but Scotland in relation to Northern Ireland. I noticed that the noise coming out of Spain today, I think, was we can take a hard line on this because this deal is going to break up the UK. We've really weakened these people by getting them to agree to this. And then it was pointed out to the Spanish person who said this thing is a Spanish foreign minister, but haven't you got problems of your own? 
our problems are nothing compared to what this is going to do to the UK. I mean, there, there was uh, something said about that Spain wouldn't oppose an independent Scotland's application to, exactly. to join the European Union. Yeah, that's a helpful comment. So, so I've got two questions coming for you. So one is going back to when you wrote your book. How central did you think in the, the politics of, of Brexit was not just Northern Ireland going to be? Because we, we've said in a way that the Northern Ireland question is... I think it's taken some people by surprise the extent to which it has become the dominant feature of this narrative. Did you sense that a year, 18 months ago? Was it always going to be that? And then where are we now in relation to the not just Northern Ireland UK question, but Northern Ireland Scotland UK question? I think I probably fell into the same trap as most other people, which was to kind of treat the Northern Ireland issue as a silo. And you'd have to fix that, but you'd be doing this other thing at the same time, which was working out what the future relationship so was So it wouldn't be, be driving the relationship. But I think now, clearly, these are, are much more closely connected. But you're absolutely right on the, on the Scotland point, which is clearly, you can see that the Scottish government is waiting to see precisely how this plays out, because their view has always been that they wanted to keep Scotland within a single market if if the arrangement that is agreed is one which will keep Northern Ireland very closely aligned to the single market, that becomes a pretext for making that argument. But of course, the problem for Scotland is always going to be the question of, well, if you actually thought Brexit was a bad idea because you're taking a part of the EU out of its major, major trading block, how does it make sense to take Scotland out of its major trading bloc, which is the rest of the UK. And I'm not so sure that the, the conditions are great for Nicola Sturgeon in trying to make a, another independence move, but it seems likely that she will. I think the interesting thing here on the um, Northern Ireland side of it is that the Democratic Unionists, indeed the Unionists generally, because the also Unionists are opposing this as well, are in serious danger of overplaying their hand in ways that in the medium to long term will actually make them staying in the Union much more difficult. Because there is a scenario in which this goes down simply because of the democratic unionist position so that essentially so this goes down in parliament it goes down in parliament and say just and goes down you mean gets voted down gets voted rather down, than yeah. goes down in the sense that gets, people like it gets voted down uh, and let's just say for the sake of argument that the outcome of this then begins to look as the possibility of britain staying in the or the united kingdom i should say staying in the european union then the democratic unionists have got the blame for brexit not happening now I think at that point they're going to find that there's a serious risk that after all the, what's the way of putting this, is the IRA were unable through the period of their armed struggle to break consent in England, Wales and Scotland to Northern Ireland being in the United Kingdom. I think in the long term the Democratic Unionists might find that they are able to weaken that quite considerably if they end up with the blame for not having Brexit. Now, they are actually getting something quite considerable out of it, because despite the fact that the majority of Northern Ireland didn't vote for Leave, the Democratic Unionists supported Leave, and without a majority in Northern Ireland, thanks to voters in the rest of the United Kingdom, they are getting what they, what they want. And they've now taken a position where they don't want to compromise about anything. And in doing so, they're risking Brexit not happening. And I think that they will come, if things turn out badly, they will come to regret that very deeply. Well, isn't that another first vote, second vote scenario? There's a huge difference then doing it twice. So for the first time round, there might be a whole range of people who could get the blame. But as it focuses on, are we really voting this down? Don't you think they might flip? I, I think they might, because I think, yeah. it's, I think Helen's right, that in some ways... This idea that the Brexit deal poses a threat to the integrity of the United Kingdom, I think is actually, it's the other way around. 
I think the cat is out of the bag in terms of the, the decentralised and sort of devolved nature of the United Kingdom. But if the deal doesn't go through, then what you're seeing is essentially a difficulty within the United Kingdom as a polity of translating a majority that happens to be an English majority into a UK-wide position. How do you have a union if you can't do that? So I think by getting the deal through, you're actually in some way cementing. I mean, it creates all sorts of secondary problems, but the essence of it is that you had a vote that was a majority vote that happened to be concentrated in England, but it was then generalised to the whole of the United Kingdom. That's how the union works. If you can't do that, you don't have a union. And it's also true that the last general election seemed to cement the idea that we had UK-wide politics again. So a lot is going to turn on whether that's true in the next general election. I mean, back to the two main parties, obviously not in Northern Ireland, but in the rest of the UK fighting it out, the SNP were being squeezed. But the alternative would be in the next general election, the SNP do what they did in the, the 2015 election and they clean up in Scotland. And that would be a break point, I think. Going back to your point about the, the two-vote scenario then, if this seems likely, that would tend to suggest that there is not going to be any attempt to make the first vote a confidence vote in any way then. No. Is that right? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> Does anyone know? I mean, that could be a difference between the first and second vote. The first isn't, the second is. Right. Surely for Labour, there's a strong incentive to make it a much more whipped vote in the first round, because this is a chance to... to Oh, sure. I'm sure Labour will whip it the first time round. And and whether the other thing that the government could do is call Labour's bluff on a free vote. So they make it a free vote and defy Labour to refuse that. Because I think that would complicate things a lot for Labour if they were the ones who were resisting a free vote. I think we've got to factor in as well is what the DUP have done on other things since. I mean, you could say that we don't actually have a government with a majority in the House of Commons, even under supply and confidence, is after the votes that they, the abstentions and that they did on the various bits of the finance bill. You could say that we now have a minority government. So it's not quite clear what Parliament's having confidence or not having confidence in, because what is supposed to be the arrangement that produces a parliamentary majority to all intents and purposes doesn't really exist any longer. I want to ask one wider question about the politics of this, which I've been thinking about this week. And Theresa May's started to address it, which is just this basic question. If this is the deal or the the first stage of the thing that's going to establish our future relationship outside of the European Union, what is the dividend for the voters? The people who voted for this because they wanted their lives to improve in some way, they wanted tangible results. And she's got this mantra now, which is, I think, something like taking back control of our money, our laws and our borders. And that's her attempt to say, you will notice this in your lives. But will people? So the money thing, they won't. No doubt there'll be tax cuts and this and that, but that would happen anyway. The laws, will people notice? Will there be sort of signal cases where the government's able to say, ha, this is why it was so great to be outside the EU? The borders is the one that she's really putting her political capital behind. And she's certainly, in speaking to the CBI and others, that's the one that she's really emphasizing. The big danger, it seems to me, not in sort of technical terms, this is Brexit in name only, but that the people who voted for Brexit, because they genuinely believe that Brexit would, in some sense, improve something don't get anything, don't get any sense of anything having changed. Well, I think that they do in the sense that if it goes through, what they've got is that the electorate has repudiated the majority of the political class who didn't want this to happen. In but that, So that's saying what they get is just the thing. I mean, it's almost like saying what they get is the people made a decision and 
the political class had to follow through on it. I still think that they, there needs to be something more than But that. it presumes then that most people who voted Leave thought that what they were doing was saying, we want to leave the European Union and then we want this on top of it, rather than the possibility that the majority of them simply wanted to leave the European Union. Well, that we would notice, the, I suppose it's the notice the difference question. Where are people going to notice the difference? Austerity is the big story behind Brexit anyway. It's a major cause of Brexit. So if what happens in the end is that we see the ending of austerity in some way, shape or form, people will believe that that's what Brexit has then delivered. I think so, to some degree, because it's the only thing, because on the border stuff, I think already Theresa May is getting pushback from business about, actually, we want more free movement and we want free movement of low skills and not just high skills. On the law side, there's going to be so much alignment anyway, I don't think. And, and it was, never was a big thing. There was very little that people would actually have said, we really dislike that thing that comes from Europe and that's what we want to change. But I think Gove will probably push very strongly on having greater control over agriculture side of things. But I, I, is that a big vote winner out there? Not so sure. Because one of the complications here is that there are various sort of end of austerity dividends that are starting to be talking about from the Conservative side coming through more investment in the NHS and so on. But they've almost jumped the gun on that. In a way, they needed to hold off on that and wait for this to go through and then say, even if it's a total fib, now we can invest in the NHS. I almost feel they've got the politics the wrong way around on this. I think it underestimates people slightly to sort of think that the focus around Brexit is on the sort of the differences sort of in terms of money and laws and, and borders. I think... The question that Brexit poses is really who calls the shots. It's a question of where power lies in the United Kingdom and who feels like they have some voice in in our politics. That's what it's become. That's not what it was necessarily at the outset, but over the course of the negotiations and whether the cause for Remain and for putting the whole thing off and disrupting the outcome has become so strong, the second referendum has become a very present thing in the debates... It's now gotten to the stage where I think that's what, for people who voted Leave, matters most, is to be able to demonstrate that there's a connection between what they vote for and what the government does. And that's, you know, in some ways it's symbolic, and at the other level it's, a, it's the very essence of, you know, of the referendum. So I don't normally, I mean, I really, I think I fundamentally disagree with you in that if that's right, I think what Brexit has shown, and this seemed to me part of the fantasy of Brexit, is that we we lack the institutional and political capacity actually to get our politics back in a shape where people have confidence in it. I think it's been damaging for people's confidence in Britain's capacity to take its own political decisions. That actually the problem with Brexit is if that was what people wanted, there is a real risk at the end of this that they don't feel it was worth it, that we feel politically weaker We've seen the problem with our politics. It's really hard for us to actually get things done. And nothing's going to improve that. I don't see that changing. I think the thing, though, is it goes back to this sort of critique, I think, that's run through what Leave voters were supposedly doing in voting to leave the European Union that almost always comes up with an explanation that has nothing to do with the European Union itself. And so this is where I think that the austerity narrative falls down. I mean, aside from anything else, you've got to explain why most of the Leave voters were Conservative voters. If you say, who are the voters who've got to think that this was worth it? The majority of them, clearly not all of them, the majority are Conservative voters. And they've not done this, voted to leave the European Union, because what they wanted to do was end austerity. They wanted to end Britain's membership of the European Union, rightly or wrongly. And so ending it in itself 
it's got to be important. Now, the question then becomes is, are they going to think that it's Brexit in name only? If it's the case still that it looks like on any number of issues that we're still aligned with the European Union or the European Court of Justice ends up still having um, influence, this is going to be a real problem with a significant number of these voters. Now, you can then turn around and say, well, are they going to then have confidence that the people who they are giving power to their own representatives chosen in Britain are going to do any better in terms of governance issues than the things that they think the European Union has done badly. And I think that's an open question. That that, that for me is the open question. Open question about what comes next. But I don't think that they need to have a vindication of British institutions in order to come to the conclusion that they were right about the failure of European Union institutions. Austerity is what created the majority for me. I think it created a different constituency to add to that constituency of mainly conservative voters who, who were always Eurosceptics. So it's about, about about creating majorities. But in terms of your point about the kind of the wider discontent with European Union institutions, and this is where we actually have to get out of the bubble of Britain and, and the UK and say actually you know, these discontents lie elsewhere. I do think austerity are heightening them elsewhere in Europe and we see in Italy the discussion had already about you know control over budgets there and European Union politics there is clearly continuing to act on the domestic level in that way and this is where I think you know Chris has a point is to say that maybe the dividend is just to say whatever happens we get to make make our own choices but I think in the context of the United Kingdom making our own choices in a devolution context where different parts of the UK feel differently about this is it's going to be a very destabilised politics in the immediate aftermath anyway. Kenneth's blog is called Brexit Time and it's got a really useful and interesting account of what the backstop means. I highly recommend it. Over Christmas, we're going to do what we did over the summer, which is put out some guides. We've got some very interesting people lined up. Martin Rees is going to talk about existential risk. Helen's going to explain Bretton Woods. Diane Coyle is going to tell us about economic well-being. And Helen and I will be around because if anything happens, we'll be here to tell you what we think. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Well, who's your favourite? Yeah, who is your favourite pop band? Um, pop band that has probably touched me the most is a competition between The Doors, Led Zeppelin, and Nirvana. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite interesting. <laughs> That's when I was sixteen. Uh, <laughs> this is difficult for me because I've gone from. Being well, this is all we're actually going to do. <laughs> <laughs> It's a toss-up between Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. Uh, last week I saw Teenage Fan Club. Uh, I saw them about 10 years ago. Yeah. I saw them about 20 years ago. you know ago. whose favourite band they are? Tony Blair. Yeah, see, they're a bit samey. So I think I'm probably Radiohead and Talking Heads. Yeah. I'm a big Talking so Heads fan too. Head or not? Uh, New Order. Yeah. Uh, Joy Division were better. Just saying. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.